So welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have Pilgrim Bert, who I haven't known for that long, probably two or three years, but we do actually live almost next door to each other and we share a neighbour. First of all, let's just talk about your background, your education and what you did before you became an entrepreneur. Thanks, Peter. I originally did computer engineering as a degree. I worked in some other people's startups in Cambridge, Oxford, and then in Silicon Valley in the 90s. And it was only after coming back from Silicon Valley, having experienced some other startups that I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to start my own. How hard can it be? So you finished your degree in the late 80s, was it? Yes, 88. And you started your first startup in 98. So you had 10 years of experience. Excellent. Just briefly on that, what rubbed off on you in Silicon Valley? The culture, I suppose, is the simple answer to that. It's just uh, amazing the way they kind of go at everything, hammer and tongs, in a way that perhaps we're a little bit more cautious about in the UK. I was involved in two very interesting startups there, one of which went public and one of which ended up being acquired. Uh, the first one was in the um, digital audio business, which had been my career until that point. And then the second one was building a, a media processor for PC. So it was a mass market, very, very full-on engineering project with about 300 engineers in it by the time I left. So it grew enormously. It was a huge, great sort of space shot project. And some people believe you can only build properly scaled startups in the valley. So what brought you back? Actually, personal things brought me back, really. I I was married out there and uh, eventually my wife and I concluded we weren't that happy in our relationship and we couldn't work out why. And we tried everything and eventually coming back to the UK was the last thing to try. So that was a sort of personal reason that Mm. brought me back. Actually, I think it was a fantastic time to be there in my 30s. I really, really enjoyed being there. It is an amazing place, but I discovered I missed the UK and uh, I'm very, very pleased to be back here. And I think you do see a lot of analogies between what has happened in Silicon Valley and what's now happening in Cambridge and so on. It's obviously different. It's got a lot of local flavour. I think there's some downsides perhaps as well to the Silicon Valley lifestyle. And I think there's uh, a lot to be said about the different cultures that are emerging here. So you came back and you formed your first company as soon as you got back or did you work for somebody else for a while? Yes, I came back. I was still working for my US company, uh, having uh, meetings at midnight. It wasn't very easy. So that clearly wasn't going to carry on forever. Mm. So I decided that rather than uh, becoming an employee in another company here, I would try starting my own. And was it Active RF? or was called Active RF. RF. Describe that briefly. So perhaps rather unwisely, I got interested in something I didn't know much about, which was radio technology, which is a black box to most engineers. And particularly interesting was the rise of short range radio car blippers and what became Bluetooth. And it seemed clear that this was going to change quite a lot in the world. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Let's find out about it. So I did a few little projects to build things. And actually, the thing that got me started off on it really properly was that uh, we had a young puppy and uh, the puppy kept escaping from the garden and it fell into our swimming pool and uh, would have drowned if I hadn't happened to find it. And both those things made me think, gosh, there must be some solution to this. And being an engineer, of course, you know, is there a technological solution to it? So I played around with making a little device for the collar, which would notify me if the dog fell into water or escaped from the garden. And uh, that worked quite well. So I thought maybe that's a starting point for a company. So initially we were looking at a safety device for dogs. Really? So it was on the collar and it was a range, so outside a certain range it would... Yeah, basically if it went out of range, the alarm would go off. And if it fell into water, the alarm would go off. Wow. And that was Active RF? Yeah. And what happened to that company? It failed, bluntly. Looking back on it, I'm just amazed. Uh, People sometimes ask me what my lessons from it were, but they were so numerous, I hardly know where to start. In retrospect, I now realise... You know, I was an R&D engineer, that had been my experience, and I'd, I'd gone up 
the sort of management ladder and started to understand how teams work and how products are defined and so on. But I really had had no exposure at all to the big picture of companies, boards, investors, and really a lot of detailed customer engagement. And um, of course, I had to try and learn all of that. And did you have investors or did you have staff or...? At Active RF, yes. yes yeah. So we, uh, I, I took a couple of uh, angel investors who got involved very early, and we then developed the technology and, and focused more on some commercial applications, and we ended up focusing on commercial anti-theft systems. Okay, and why did it fail just round as a cash? I think we never really managed to get to product market fit, and what became our main customers, which were large supermarkets, are very tough customers. It's very easy to get stuck in trials with them and never actually really close the big deal. And, and meanwhile, yes, you're running out of cash. So we, we just never really hit our stride, I think. And the investors, they dried up. You couldn't raise any more investment. I could blame it. I mean, the actual death of it was the dot-com bubble bursting. But uh, I think that's a convenient excuse. I, I think if you look at all the ingredients that you need in a successful company, I think we didn't really have any of them, to be honest. <laughs> and that only became apparent well, as we... And then Antinova was sort of a slight overlap there, was it? Yeah, Antinova was was slightly strange. We're trying to solve a problem at ActiveRF to do with radio location for the commercial applications, trying to work out where things were. And so we were looking at some novel antenna technology. I talked to a researcher at Sheffield University who was working on a project with another researcher at Brisbane in Australia. And really, I was just asking them for some consultancy. But every time I talked to them, we discovered that they were working on a really interesting piece of science which would allow spatial diversity, basically a very new quality of antennas. And we thought, wow, what happens if you apply that to a big market like the mobile phone market? So to cut a long story short, we created a separate company, which I was CEO of to begin with, but because I was still running my first thing, we quickly brought someone else in as CEO. And that has ultimately gone on to sell billions of antenna systems into primarily smartphones. Oh, well, it's really an IP company, oh, yes. Okay. So it's a bit like an ARM model or something. It, right. it owns the IP, but the manufacturing is mainly done in the Far East. And it's based in Cambridge as well, isn't it? So. It's R&D is based in Cambridge, okay. yeah. And I mean, that's where it was founded. And, and you were involved just a couple of years with that, so you? Yes. Yeah, okay. So then it appears, just looking at your LinkedIn, there's a bit of a gap before Alert Me. What was in that? So that gap was filled by Splash Power which is a wireless power startup started by a couple of people who are fresh grads out of Cambridge, fantastic individuals. And their vision was that we could charge all of the gadgets in our life up by just throwing them onto something that looked a bit like a mouse mat. And as if by magic, they would charge up. And it was a fantastic vision. And obviously now it is coming true. But now is 2018, not 2002 when they started. And I've talked in other places about my experiences there, but uh, in essence, I think we were very early to market. We were probably 10 years before the market really emerged, and we kept trying to deliver the end game, which was the mass market consumer product. It's very hard to put technology into mass market products like smartphones. There's no space, there's no budget, there's no thermal budget, and therefore that was a really quite challenging thing to do. And um, ultimately, Splash Power was fire sailed for about four and a half million in 2008. And again, the proximate cause of that, you could say, was a credit crunch. But actually, I think it had other problems. I think in retrospect, what we could have done, though, is to aim at a slightly less ambitious target and focus on niche markets which really needed wireless charging, like military or sports. So basically getting rid of the last connector, which is the power connector. And the company could easily have survived within those niches and continued to develop its IP and its technology. Yeah, I think we're trying to go from zero to to some insane thing in one go. And uh, that is very challenging. The four and a half million you've just mentioned, that probably wasn't too bad for some of the early investors. 
Though I suspect it had raised more money. Well, no, it had. It had. So it was a complete washout for the early investors. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, I was, I was a little annoyed because I felt there was no need to sell it quite that quickly. It was sold in 28 days. I think if it had been sold a little slower, then something and else could have been realised. And there were some preference shares in there, which yes. is why the ordinary shares, the founders. Yes, but this was just after Lehman Brothers had failed. And I think, frankly, there was some panic going on. Yes. Amongst, uh, well, four and a half million for somebody is better than zero, mm. even though it, it you know, washed yeah. other people out. Absolutely. Good. So then, was it called Alert Me to start yes. with? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you formed that with Adrian. With Adrian Critchlow. Yeah. Was that after Flash Power or towards the end of yes. it? Or? This is a long journey and an interesting journey. So let's concentrate mm. on this one. Tell us about the beginning, the middle and the end. <laughs> so Alert Me started with Adrian and I having a series of lunches, actually, convivial lunches, just discussing the way the world was going, what was happening in technology, what was happening in markets, trying to identify kind of interesting trends that were happening. And gradually that led into us realising that there was an opportunity here which somebody was going to seize, and so it might as well be us. So there were some technology drivers to do with short-range radio again and to do with broadband, connecting people's homes and phones becoming a thing in everyone's hands that was connecting them to the internet. But it felt like there wasn't really a product which connected people to their homes at an emotional level. Homes are very important to people. They spend a lot of money and time in there. Their precious families there. Their precious possessions are there. It felt like there was a real opportunity to create a platform which would connect people to their homes. And then on that platform, you could deliver applications like security, energy management, looking after older people, that kind of thing. And this was in 07? 2006 so is when six. Alert Me was So found. the iPhone, though that's not the first smartphone by any means, was around about 2007. Then. So, so yeah, yeah, so the iPhone came along about a year after we started okay. Alert Me. And the premise, the initial premise for the company was what? To create what you'd now call a smart home platform. It's funny how I can now say it in one sentence, but in 2006, it took at least five minutes of explaining what we were trying to do. But essentially, yes, a smart home platform, so a gateway in the home, some initial starter devices around some application. We chose security, but it could have been anything really. But the premise was, as we now see with Alexa and Google Home and so on, that once you've got a presence in the home, once you've got a platform, once you've got a brand, you can then expand out from that. Right, okay, and you started with security. So yes. You, so you had a gateway which was connected via the Wi-Fi, was it, or the uh, broadband? Yeah. It was connected over broadband, and it could also fall back to cellular, so it's quite a resilient connectivity. It also had a battery, so it could survive power cuts. So those things are important for security, right. perhaps not so much for other applications. And the reason we chose security is just that there were the likes of ADT selling services in the security space, mm. and we felt they weren't doing a very good job, and we felt we could do a much better offering very much aimed at mass market. So what we were trying not to do was home automation for rich people yeah. and geeks. That had been done and it would be done for the foreseeable future, but it was a small market. We were aiming really at the mass market. Okay, so let's talk about funding rounds then. So mm. you raised some angel funding to start with, did you? Yes, so we seed funded it ourselves initially. Mm. And then we went out for our first angel round and we were looking for a million. Right. We actually ended up raising a five million pound angel round, which what? is, I know, a bit anomalous. But this was before the credit crunch, when yes. perhaps uh, things were rather overinflated. About a million of that came from Cambridge Angels, and the rest came from a US hedge fund that was looking to diversify into things like venture capital, essentially. Goodness me. Okay. And then Adrian left, didn't he? Was that then or before then? Or So Adrian left in 2009. And of course, what happened between 2006 and 2009 was the credit crunch. That was extremely challenging for us because we were well funded to begin with. We were able to build the team we needed to build really quite an ambitious platform. 
We wanted to be the operators of the smart home, but in order to do that, we had to have devices that would work in the home, and there weren't any. There wasn't anything out there that we could buy, so we had to design and build it, and then have it made in volume in China. And that's obviously not a small undertaking. So we also had to build a significant team. So we had a team of, of about 35 at that point, because there's a lot of technology in IoT, from the edge devices to the gateways to the cloud to the application, lots of different programming languages, and you had and so to on. build. It wasn't called IoT, I suspect, then, was it? Uh, IoT was a phrase that was used, but it wasn't a common yeah. parlance, certainly. Yeah. So yes, a classic early market innovator play. We had to do an awful lot of stuff we didn't really want to do just to deliver a complete product. So we got that product into the hands of B two C customers in the UK initially, which was fantastic for co creation. We could learn from them, understand what we needed to do to fix the technology and to fix the proposition and iterate, and that was growing. And then we went out for VC funding just before the credit crunch happened, and that was extremely painful. And for many months, I thought we were almost certainly doomed. But thirty five people's jobs relied on us not being doomed, and. In the end, by the skin of our teeth, we managed to close a Series A of eight million pounds from a number of very big and very good VCs, including Index, Vantage Point. There's a big family fund called Good Energies and a small European VC called SetVP. So where was this in the credit crunch? Was it 08 now? So we actually closed the round in April 2009. Okay, right. So things are stabilising a bit. There was a lot of uncertainty. Yes, we won all sorts of awards for deal of the year, because that was about the only deal there was that year. (laughs) And and one of the things that I think saved us was that we had started to add the second application, which was energy. And the world was really waking up to climate change at that point, including VC. And so people could see that there was a lot of opportunity in all the disruption and change that was going to have to happen as a result of addressing climate change. Was there a secondary at that point for the angels, or was that later? No. Well, actually, an important thing that happened was that as we tried to survive, whilst we were raising this round, our angels did come in and bridge us with an investment. And in fact, the small VC also bridged us because that was their seat to the table with yeah, the bigger boys. Good. And as a result of that, you know, the angels did put in some, some more money. More money, yes. Point. Okay, yeah. Yeah, good. And so this is about 09. And then yeah. Adrian decided for a lifestyle change by the sound of it. Yes, I think it had been a pretty bruising time. He'd just had three small children. And he actually went off to live in Australia right. <laughs> at that point. We're still very good friends. I, I saw him just yesterday, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, so uh, I hope he'll come back from Australia soon. And he's uh, Andy Phillips' cousin, isn't he? he is. is that right? Yes. And Andy Phillips has already been on the podcast. So. Yeah. so you had another funding round later. When was that then, I suppose? What's the date of that? The, the Series B, I think, was in late 2010. Okay, so this yeah. is only 18 months or so, 20 months after the Series A. So your burn rate's increased. You've got the team up to... Yeah, probably about 60 by that point. We had also, so I spent nearly two years driving on an almost weekly basis down to Staines to try and win British Gas as a customer. Right. And obviously that's very challenging to win a very large customer like that. It, in some ways there were echoes of what I tried to do in my first startup. It's very hard to work with very large companies if you're a small startup. But I think what we ended up doing, and I think this was luck more than strategy, was we were able to use the engagement we'd got from our direct B2C customers to prove to these large channel partners like British Gas, and we also had a large one in the US called Lowe's, to prove to them that the technology did work, the proposition did work, people would pay us money. Okay, only at a small scale, hundreds and thousands of customers, but it was the kind of evidence that would then give them faith to actually go and commit to it. And British Gas, bless them, really did commit to it. Right, in terms of bringing it into the market before they invested, did they? Yes, so we basically did a £20 million framework deal with them, 
which was a sort of uh, financial deal over two, I think, three years. And then they invested in our Series B and they, they overinvested compared to all the other investors to bring them up to parity with the VCs. So they essentially were on the same footing as the VCs from that point. So they then owned, what, 20% or something or more? 16, yeah. 16%, yes, okay. And the 20 million was product, was it? It was pushing product yes. out into the market. Yeah. And your revenues would not be anything like that at that point, would you? I don't suppose you're doing 20 million a year, were you? No, no not per year, but it was a three-year yeah, three so, deal. Yeah, so 6 million. So, yeah. so it gives you a great customer, one hopes. It gives you a great investor, one hopes, and it gives you the capital really to grow properly. So that must have been pretty exciting, I would suppose. Yes, it, it very much felt like a sort of validation of what we thought would happen in the market. And we'd always identified utilities as one of the interesting channels for this kind of mass market home technology. Perhaps most people wouldn't think a utility would move faster than a mm. telco or a retailer, the other possible channels. But uh, I think British Gas had worked out that they strategically selling a commodity like energy in, in an era of climate change is not a very nice place to be, and it's important to have other strings to your bow. Right, okay. But they wanted primarily the Hive, the, the yes. Nest competitor, rather than the home security, or were they selling well, so as well? Well, so we originally, so British Gas, when we first engaged with them, we just had the security application on the platform, and that's what they originally engaged with, and they pushed that out to a couple of thousand customers, fairly quietly, but mm. in a small way. And they do have other businesses like Dino, the drain cleaning business oh, and so yes. on, which aren't immediately connected to energy. So we thought that might work. In the end, though, it was quite an uphill battle. It didn't resonate very well with the brand and there wasn't that kind of real product market mm. fit. So gradually, we focused more and more on energy. We were already moving into energy anyway. So we developed a thermostat option and we eventually pushed out about 10,000 thermostat systems, what was then called remote remote heating control is what it was called. Okay. This was before the marketing people had got to it and, <laughs> called, and called it Hive. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, it was the beginning of what became Hive. So that was then 10. So what was the next move? When you got the Series A, you then had Index. Okay. Saul Klein was on the board, wasn't yes. it? Yes. So Saul Klein was our investor director from Index. Yes. Okay. Do you remember who else was on the board? What mix of people? Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly who was in my mind, it's slightly confused as to who was technically a director and who was an observer, yeah, because sometimes yeah. large VCs will want an observer position. Mm. And we did have someone who was an entrepreneur in residence at Vantage Point in the States as our, uh, I think they may technically have only been an observer, but they did come to all the board meetings, even if it was 4am their time. Yes. And also set VP, our, our European VC investor. And do you remember those board meetings fondly? I mean, did they feel like they were contributing and unanimously moving in the same direction? They were fine. I think whenever you get a large group of VCs around the table, you can count on things being interesting. At that point, our chairman was George Quelo, who is another of our investors, representing Good Energies, this large family fund, I mean, one billion family fund. And he was a good chair. I think looking back on the kind of advice we got from our, our larger investors, as it were, you always hope you're going to get added value from mm. investors. And there definitely were times of significant added value. There was one particular time when a large US company called Opower was trying to sell their energy analytics product to British Gas. And Saul said to us, look, they're parking their tanks on your lawn. You cannot let this stand. Mm. And so in very short order, we had to set about generating our own product that basically countered that and uh, made sure we got the business. And that was very challenging. And it was only thanks to Saul really stiffening our spines that, that mm. we did that. And I, I look back and think on that as very, very important strategic input. Good, okay. But there are occasions where the VCs wouldn't necessarily agree with each other, no doubt. 
Well, it's no secret that VCs tend to be quite, you know, there's often a lot of turbulence and change. They're quite fashion driven. So, you know, one month uh, software will be the greatest thing since sliced bread and then the next month hardware will be the greatest thing. And uh, it was quite interesting to see the dynamics of that versus what happened with British Gas when they became an investor because they were a much more steady investor. They knew why they'd invested. It was quite clear what they were trying to do. And so they helped to sort of steady the ship, I think. Because they'd done it partly for financial reasons, but probably more for strategic reasons, I should think. Yeah, so they, about five years prior to that, when home insulation became a big thing and became government-funded, they had put a lot of work the way of the Mark Group which was an insulation company. Yeah. And then they'd noticed that the guy who ran the Mark Group had become number 27 in the Times Rich List. <laughs> and they thought, hang on, we've helped this guy get to this position. So next time we do this, we need to make sure that we've got some skin in the game. We've got a slice of the pie. So yeah, they could also see that they were building their future on top of a platform and that it was important that they had influence and visibility into the company. Well, the, the acquirer, of course, that did happen. So mm. Series B, did you have a Series C or did it was next was X? We didn't, yeah, we didn't yeah. really have a Series C. There was then a bit of venture debt from Silicon Valley Bank, okay. but not really a Series C. And it sold in about 15, didn't it? In March 2015, it sold. Yes, okay. Some of that will not be in the public domain. I don't want you to say something that you don't want to say, but can you just describe the process of whatever you want to say, the point of deciding to exit or whatever, there may be more to that, to the point of exit, the process and the outcome? There's always this question about when to exit. And sometimes that will come very much from the investors because their fund's reaching the end of its life or whatever it is. And, and that's often not a very helpful dynamic. In our case, that wasn't particularly the case. Uh, the investors were up for funding it further. And so it was a decision about what was the best roll of the dice, as it were. Mm. The market was changing quite fast. Players like Nest had come into the market, which actually was a great help to us. Big competitors can be a big help in creating the market and establishing value Mm. and so on. And so a lot was happening. I think we kind of felt like we'd probably done enough rolls of the dice, frankly, and that it was probably time to find a home for it, especially as a number of large players were emerging who wanted this kind of technology. So British Gas was one of them, obviously, but there were plenty of others. And so it felt like there was now a market for the company, whereas there hadn't been. And so the whole process took about a year from that decision to actually selling the company. And did you get a corporate financier involved? Yes. Okay. And was there a bidding process? In other words, British Gas didn't get it just because they were on the cap table. There absolutely was a bidding process. And obviously, in terms of the original investment terms, we had to be careful that they didn't end up having to wear hats on both sides of the deal, as oh, it were. to so block a deal to a exactly, competitor. Exactly. Yeah. So they, uh, they sometimes had to recuse themselves from discussions and so on, obviously. And so that's a little bit delicate. It's both a help and a hindrance having an incumbent in place like that. You know, well, there probably is a customer, at least, for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, they were by then our biggest customer for the product. Yes. And so that's obviously a slightly interesting dynamic. Yes, and that must have been difficult at times. And so, again, you might not want to say this, but British Gas bought the business and presumably they also offered the best deal in terms of price. Yes, it was a financial decision at the end of the day for the investors. Good, okay. And are you happy with that? Yes. So you started to think about device plans. Let's talk about that Mm. from the beginning. Obviously, the relationship with AlertMe or Hive, as it's now called, Mm. and where you've got to with the company now. So I suppose a lot of startups happen from somebody wanting to scratch an itch, as it were, seeing a problem that needs solving. And the biggest surprise in the Alert Me journey for me, which was a nine-year journey end-to-end, was that I had originally thought of it as primarily a development challenge. We knew we would have to develop a lot of hardware and software, develop the proposition and so on. 
And I thought once we'd got over that big hump, which would take a lot of time and money, then we'd just scale. And I kind of thought of scaling as just something that would sort of happen. But as we got over that hump and we started scaling, we discovered that, surprise, surprise, when you have a connected product, it becomes a service. You are a service provider and the product is just a way to deliver the service. And if you're a service provider, then your day-to-day -day challenge is whether you're doing a good job of delivering that service. Are your devices all working? Your operations team, your customer support team will all be focused on that challenge. That's what your money will be spent on. That's what your, where your attention will go. So this doesn't happen overnight. It's a transition from R&D which amortizes against eventual very large scale to operations, which doesn't. Operations costs grow in tandem with your number of devices. And it's very easy with a connected product to end up in a situation where as your number of customers grow, so do your losses. You can actually end up in a situation where you're doing far too much manually, people are expensive, and therefore as the number of devices grows, you, know, you end up making a bigger and bigger loss. And it's quite hard to dig yourself out of that hole. That did happen to us in about 2010 at Alert Me. And because you've asked me not to swear on this, I won't tell you exactly what we call this moment. This is the oh something moment. Okay. And so it was when we realized that we had migrated from R&D into operations and now the game was scaling and that we hadn't invested nearly enough in all of the tools we would need to help us do operations well. So that was my big learning from AlertMe. So as I started to get free towards the end of my time at AlertMe, I went and talked to lots and lots of other companies that are doing connected products in all sorts of other markets. So not just connected home, but smart city, medical, connected office, you know, you name it. And we kind of heard the two stories again and again. The first was that people who hadn't scaled just didn't get this. They didn't understand that this would happen. But the few that had scaled, there was lots of eye rolling and recognition of the fact that, yes, as you start to get to scale, then day-to-day -day operations becomes the challenge. And Your it margin takes time and gets money. eroded by support, I suspect, doesn't well, it? You start yes. to actually confront the true economics of your business yeah. at scale, how much money you make per month per customer, your MRR, and how much you're spending per month yes. per customer, and whether one is bigger than the other. Yeah, yeah. And, and also whether you're actually delivering a good experience yeah. to your customers. You know, if you've got a 1% problem and you've got 100 customers, well, it's just one slightly mm. weird customer. Who knows whether that's a hardware problem or a software problem or whatever. But if you've got a million customers and you've got a 1% problem, that's a Daily Mail front page problem. And so, you know, as you grow, your quality has to get much, much better, which means not only your hardware and software has to get better, but your process mm. has to get better because devices will go wrong in lots of different ways. They're being deployed into the real world, which is an uncontrolled place. So that's just inevitable. And so your processes for dealing with things that are not working and getting them working again become everything, really. Mm. Okay, so you funded it yourselves, I think, in a bit of customer money to start with, because the first time I think yes. we met over this was you going out from funding, was it about two years ago now? Yes. And you raised some capital, mm. not from me, I must say. I, mm. I turned you down. <laughs> which I hope I've actually missed out, and I, well, let's for your sake. So. Let's, let's review that in a few years' time and <laughs> yes, see. Yes, exactly. You've had a couple of funding rounds, and where's the business got to now? So staff size, customers, etc. Yes, so we're still at a relatively early stage. So we did actually start a company in 2013 before I'd left AlertMe, but we didn't really know what we were going to do at that point. We we're still trying to understand the market, trying to understand what the gap in the market was. And that really had happened by the end of 2015. So in 2016, we raised our first angel round and renamed ourselves Device Pilot, and that was really the beginning of the Device Pilot story. 2017 was then our first year of commercial sales. And we ended the year with five paying customers. So companies all doing connected products in all sorts of different markets and all basically buying the same thing, device pilot, and using it to help solve their operational problems. Good. Okay. 
So Pilgrim, great journey. You've, in fact, there, I, I noticed on Companies House, you've been director of another three or four companies and we haven't got time to talk about those. Do you want to talk about market development here, don't you? Yes, I think if you do something again and again, you start to learn patterns. You start to see patterns that are not unique to the startup or as a result of luck, they're actually systemic things. And something I've noticed again and again now is that if you're an innovator, you're delivering a new product to a new market, you're probably going to be a bit early for market. So the question is, well, A, how do you survive? That's a, a whole topic in itself. But the second thing is that the market hopefully will then start to really happen and start to take off. There's a massive opportunity for you there to grow as the market grows. But what are the dynamics of that? And I think for me, a key thing to point out is that in the early days, you will have to do all sorts of things that you don't really want to do and that perhaps you're not very good at. So Alert Me is a classic example. We had to design and build hardware at scale in order to deliver a complete solution to our customers. But we didn't want to be a hardware vendor. So the important point is that in the early days, there's no one else to work with. But then as the market takes off, there are other people to work with. And it's really important that you do start to work with them and that you partner with people. You can offload parts of your solution to them, bits that you didn't really want to do anyway, like hardware in the case of AlertMe. But also you'll find increasingly that you can buy pieces of your solution from other vendors mm -hmm. like AWS and so on. And again, it's really important that you re-engineer to ensure that you can ride on those scaling curves as well. Because if you don't do those things, you'll end up trying to be good at everything. And nobody can be good at everything, not even Amazon or Apple or anyone. And so it's really important that you focus on the piece you're going to be good at and make sure you're world class at it and that you're very good at working with others. And that kind of dynamic is what makes ecosystems happen. But it's very important to understand when that's happening in your market and to proactively actually divest yourself of all the bits that you had to do for practical reasons, but which are not really core to your excellence. Yeah, I mean, it's a failing of many engineers, unfortunately, not invented here. Mm. If it hasn't been invented here, they don't want to get involved with it. Actually controlling that as a CEO, and particularly a technical CEO, is really important, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I live in Cambridge. I love Cambridge, but I slightly feel like I have a love-hate relationship about it. I think the wonderful things about Cambridge, obviously, are that uh, people can just do things that other people thought were completely impossible. And that's absolutely amazing. I think that the darker side to that sometimes is that sometimes people do things from scratch just because they can. Mm. And they, they go, oh, a database. I can make a database. And they write a database, you know, ignoring probably thousands of man years of investment in how to get that stuff right. And, I, and actually, you asked me right at the beginning about Silicon Valley and the culture there. I think that's something that Silicon Valley is often better at, which is that classic engineering standing on the shoulders of giants and making sure that you're just adding that unique mm. piece of value on top. You're not trying to invent the whole thing from scratch. Because another problem with inventing everything from scratch, apart from all the money and time it takes, is that when you've finished, your thing will not work with anyone else's and you won't be able to ride off anyone else's scaling curve. That's right. Propriety, when I started CamData in the 80s, it was really important to be propriety because you protect your margin that way. Mm. <laughs> for a while. RS485 networks, yep. very specifically non-standard ones they couldn't buy from anywhere else. Mm. But when they can, they dump you, don't they? Exactly. They'd rather have open standards. Exactly. That's the history of many, many things, including networking. Yes, lots yes. of proprietary stuff. And then suddenly Ethernet just came and everyone else was dead overnight. Exactly. So one or two more tips for entrepreneurs. I think the most important one probably is to try and learn from other people's mistakes. That's why I'm here today. I want other people to learn from my mistakes. And I'm very happy to try and help other people do that. From my point of view, I think there is so much talent out there, so many experiences and a, a sort of network of people who know people who can find you customers, who can find you people to solve problems, who can find you great staff. 
And you really need to kind of tap into all of that. Uh, there's a sort of joke that in Cambridge, you're never more than one pint away from the answer to any problem. Take someone out for a pint. I think that's a great approach. And I'm often surprised by how generous people are prepared to be in helping you if you've got a problem and really take advantage of that. Excellent. Really interesting, Pilgrim. Really enjoyed it. People have learned a lot from that. You've had more entrepreneurial journeys than I think anybody else we've interviewed. And I wish you so much luck and success in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. Investor.